Before getting into the heart of the study for today, I want to go backwards. And I want to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and lay the foundation that causes the text that we will examine today to have meaning and to have a greater understanding of what it means and how God intends for it to apply to us in our day. When God created the heavens and the earth, He did not do so capriciously. He had a plan and a purpose for creating and putting into existence those things which He spoke into life. And when he created man on the sixth day, he explained to man his intent and design for him. That plan and purpose meant for Adam to take throughout all of the earth the glorious, holy, manifest presence of God. They were to be fruitful, Multiply, replenish the earth. And when he took Adam and placed him in the garden in Eden and brought to him Eve, his wife, he gave to them a command Guard the garden. Guard the garden. Protect it. Protect it from evil on the outside that would want to come in and destroy the garden because the garden became God's temple on earth. His place of living residence. His presence inhabited and dwelt in that garden in Eden. He walked with Adam and Eve. He talked with them. He fellowshiped with them and they with him freely because of holiness. There was no sin. And God manifest himself to them and they fellowshiped with them in the garden. And God designed for that garden in Eden not to stay in Eden, but to spread throughout all of the earth so that his presence, his glory would fill the earth now we know what happened before long and we don't know how long it could have been a long time it could have been one day well it wasn't one day because the next day was the first day of rest (laughs) but two days it could have been After the day of rest, it could have been that day when Adam and Eve sinned. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. It just says that the serpent came and tempted them and they sinned. By the way, that sin was a sin of covetousness. It was a sin of the heart. They wanted more. They wanted more than what God had given them. And the devil tempted them to think that there was more that God was holding back from them. And the temptation came to them. Don't you want more? If you eat that fruit, you'll get more. And they sinned. 
when they sinned, it became necessary for God to drive them out of the garden, out of the temple, because righteousness and unrighteousness cannot coexist. And he drove them out of the garden. And he placed cherubim at the eastern gate, the entrance into the garden, to protect the tree of life. At first thought, that may sound like cruelty, but it was a blessing. Because it protected them from an eternal life of sin. So, he placed the cherubim there and he drove them out. And before he drove them out, he made a promise to them. I will send one, the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. He will come. Drove them out from the garden. And that verse marks the start of God's restoration his plan of redemption to bring back the garden in Eden and the rest of scripture through the Old Testament and into the New Testament has as its purpose a progressive revelation of the fulfillment of of that promise that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden to bring the champion who would crush the head of the serpent. And in the process of crushing the head of the serpent would restore his creation and fulfill his plan and purpose which was that his glory, his presence, his holiness would fill the earth. God never changed that plan. God didn't go to plan B when Adam and Eve sinned. He brought about through progressive revelation to us that we might see and understand the fulfillment of how he would bring about what he initially commanded to Adam and Eve in the garden. At first, it was simply dealing with individuals. God didn't deal with masses of peoples. He dealt with individuals. There was Enoch, there was Seth, there was Noah, and then came Abraham. Abraham was the start of God's plan of redemption through people, through a nation, through the seed of Abraham. And he promised to Abraham that through all of the nations of the earth, they would be blessed through his seed. Does that sound familiar? That's the command that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. When he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and he says, I have redeemed you with a strong arm and he brought them to Mount Sinai, part of what he revealed to them was an interesting plan 
a temple. And he told Moses, now I want you to build this temple exactly like what you see where? In the heavenlies. That's the temple I want you to build. It's just like the one you see. Be careful. Do it exactly like that. Why the temple? God's presence was not on the earth. The temple became the visible recreation in a crude, rudimentary fashion, a replication, if you will, of the Garden in Eden. And that temple that God commanded Moses to build had many of the same things in it that was in the garden. The precious stones, the lampstand in the holy place, figuring the trees. There were the cherubim that were woven into the fabric that protected the holy place from the holy of holies. The cherubim on the ark on which the presence of God dwelt. God's presence among his people. And what a glorious presence it was. You can read the description of when they completed the tabernacle and they built it and God's presence came down into the Holy of Holies upon that Ark of the Covenant on the cherubim and His presence came down and it was so magnificent and awesome that the priests and everyone around it fell on their face before the awesome presence of God. We read in Leviticus that God told Moses he said I will dwell with my people I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will dwell among them this was the place the temple for the next several hundred years God's presence dwelt in that tabernacle There's a little dispute on time. Some say maybe 400 years. I'm not going to argue about how many years it was. He was there. They saw it. It was visible. As they wandered through the wilderness, then as they erected it at Shiloh, then when they moved it through David to Jerusalem, and then when Solomon built the temple, the magnificent temple had the same things in it that the tabernacle had. It had the walls in the Holy of Holies were just covered with gold replications of the cherubim. And the fabric between the holy and holy place and the Holy of Holies had the gold weavings of the cherubim in there. All of the utensils and instruments in the temple. And we read in Second Chronicles chapter 5, 6, and 7. When the tabernacle was finished, how the presence of God came down into that temple 
and again the people including the king and the priests and all who were there fell on their face before the glorious holy presence of God manifested and revealed to them in that temple for the next several hundred years he was there then we read the awful story recorded in Ezekiel of the departure of the presence of God Ezekiel saw it first the presence moved to the gate entrance of the temple then he moved to the gate of the city then he moved to the Mount of Olives and was gone why did he leave? why did he leave? because of the continued rebellion in the hearts and minds of God's people he said he would and he did for the next 400 years after that departure there is no written evidence of God's presence ever returning back Then came Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle the temple Jesus Jesus was the new temple and he called himself the temple destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up he did exactly that we read in Revelation which we will encounter next week the consummation of it all what comes down out of heaven it says there is no tabernacle there for the tabernacle is the Lord Jesus became the fulfillment of the pictures the plan and purpose of God to restore back to his original intent and design and plan only better because now through Christ we have his indwelling presence Jesus promised his disciples on that night in which he was betrayed in John 14, 15 and 16 he said it's necessary for me to go away there's much more that I need to teach you and to tell you but we don't have time for that now and you can't stand what I need to tell you right now but I'm going to send the Spirit the Holy Spirit He will come I will ask the Father He will send the Spirit He will come and He will be in you and those of you who love me 
and obey my commandments, we, 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 the Father, me, the Spirit, we will come and take up our abode with you. So that now what have we become? Temples. Temples. The indwelling presence of God within us. I haven't gotten to the reference yet. I will in a moment. But I want to stick in a parenthesis here. Does His presence in your life have any kind of resemblance to the glorious, manifest, holy presence He has revealed in the past when He came to dwell in His temple? Anything like it? That scares me. We are temples. And over the last few weeks, we have studied the progress of the sanctification, the progression into glory to glory to glory, the increasingness of holiness and sanctification in our daily lives. And I have viewed it from the standpoint of individuals. Today I want us to examine it from the standpoint of the church. And that reference we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I put it in your notes. That will be our text that we will look at in the remaining time that we have. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse number 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and this is a quotation from Leviticus, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul observed the church at Corinth as having fallen under the influence of fallen of uh, false teachers. And they proposed and taught many false doctrines to the church at Corinth, and they did to the church at Galatia as well. But this passage comes from the church at Corinth, and his concern 
for his friends, his believers, the believers in Corinth at the church that he had founded when he went there after Athens. And his concern was for the church. Not individuals, the church. Because the church had declined. And in this passage, we find a variety of comments that the Lord Jesus makes, and he stu- or I mean that Paul makes to the church. And he starts out with a command. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then follows a series of questions which provide for us, if we reverse the question and turn it into a statement, a series of indicatives, a series of facts that are true. And because they are true, you must not become unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What partnership? What partnership is there between righteousness and unrighteousness? Paul begins by describing the relationship as a yoke. Don't be unequally yoked. You know what a yoke is. That's that wooden bar that connects a two animals together for the purpose of plowing and uh, work in the field and other kinds of of work that you would use for, for a team of animals don't put a horse and an ox together don't put a horse and a mule together must be the same kind And the same law applied for breeding purposes. Don't breed. Don't mix breeds. That's that's not God's plan. Don't be unequally yoked together. And Paul takes that example and extends it into personal relationship and the condition of the church. And the first one is a partnership. Don't become a partner with evil. Partnerships have shared purpose. Partnerships have shared function. Don't become a partner with evil. Because how can you mix righteousness and unrighteousness? You can't. Then he goes on and he says, What fellowship has light and darkness? You all know this, that the existence is darkness. Light dispels darkness. If you remove the light, it's dark. Either it's going to be light or it's going to be dark. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. There is no mutual relationship between the two. How can you have fellowship 
with evil if you are light you can't then he goes on what accord has Christ with Belial accord talks about agreement there is no agreement between Christ and God and the devil there is none they're enemies there isn't some kind of a joint arrangement between God and the devil to work things out Genesis 3.15 the seed of the woman will do what? crush the head of the servant there's no, no agreement there no accord there there's no joint getting together there that's a destruction what agreement what accord can there ever possibly be between God and the devil there isn't any can't then he goes on what portion does a believer and an unbeliever share a child of God cannot does not have any partnership any sharing together with an unbeliever can't light dark righteous unrighteous good evil Christ Belial they cannot come together and then he says four four you are the temple now there's an interesting pattern here in the original language the word translated you here is plural but the word for temple is singular so Paul isn't talking to them about temples although that is true he's talking here about the temple the church the assembly the gathering together of the faithful of the followers of Christ that group God's presence is there you are the temple of God the temple of the living God for he said I will come down and I will dwell with you and I will make my presence known among you and I will be your God and you will be my people do you see the progress we are now living in the era of the spirit of God living within us as individual temples and also as collectively the temple of God God's presence dwelling with us on earth when was the last time you considered that a gathering together in this building for the assembly of believers was that we might recognize and enjoy and experience the presence of almighty God dwelling among us experiencing his holiness 
wondering at his glory? I want to ask you to answer. And I'm not a betting man, but I'd be willing to bet a double dip ice cream cone that you don't. Because we don't have that kind of presence of God among us. Oh, we have some good services. Yeah, we do. We have some good music. Yeah, we do. But have you ever had an almost overwhelming desire to fall on your face before the presence of God in the place? Have you ever had the time when God's presence was so dynamic and so real and so vital and so glorious and so holy to you that you were you were just like we've read not today but on other occasions the descriptions of what occurred when the glory and the presence of God came down in the temple have you ever had that? that's what we're supposed to have that's the temple that's what God designed and he purposed and he planned and why he sent Christ that we might have that that's our right and privilege that's why we read last week we studied in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians how the Spirit of God where the Spirit of God is there is liberty and where the Spirit of God there is a transformation that changes us from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory that's God's plan therefore Therefore, the indicatives and the facts and the truths about God and the realities of truth, distinguishing right from wrong, good from evil, light from dark, righteousness from unrighteousness, God from Belial, carries with it implications. Because that is true and the temple of God is his place of residence and presence among his people where he comes to dwell with them therefore therefore what? starting in verse number 17 go out from those who are evil depart from them Leave. Separate from them. A couple of years ago, I did a series of studies for a Sunday evening Bible study that I taught on wolves in sheep's clothing, false prophets in the church. And it had several parts to it concluding with a section on 
what do we do now? If I have identified, and the readers have identified the false prophets, and I happen to be in a place led by false prophets, what do I do? I leave. I leave. And that's what the scriptures teach. Paul taught it. Jude taught it. His counsel to Timothy. His counsel to the church at Corinth. You leave. Find an interesting thing about the Lord Jesus. Examine his life and you might prove me wrong. But you'll take some scratching to prove me wrong. Jesus didn't chase anybody. We chase people. We chase after them. We beg them. Jesus didn't. One possible exception was Samaria. He went to Samaria because he knew there was a woman there. And through that woman he won the town. And you could say, well, he chased her. Well, that's not exactly what I'm trying to get across. If they didn't want Jesus in the town, what did he do? He left. He left. Paul counseled his friends, go out from their midst. Leave them. Depart. Separate from them. Latter part of verse 17. And touch no unclean thing. Now at first thought you immediately think of the, of the tactile. <laughs> Touching an unclean thing. That's not what the word means. What it means is don't attach yourself to something that is unclean. So that could be something physical. Such as a marriage such as sexual immorality, such as some other kind of vice or sin, a practice of sin. But it's also, throughout Scripture, has to do with the spiritual nature. Spiritual adultery. Idol worship. Pursuing other gods. Seeking after things other than loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So don't don't attach yourself to that which is unclean. Verse 1, chapter 7. Since we have these promises, well, what are the promises? What were the promises? The promises were, I'll come and I'll dwell with you. You'll be my people, I will be your God. The promises were, I will be a father to you. You will be sons and daughters to me. Because that is true, therefore, we get the last one, cleanse yourself. Purge it out. Purge out everything that is unclean. Get rid of it. Purify yourselves. So that in the process you will bring about increasing holiness. That verb 
is in the tense of the continuous. Continue to cleanse. You start, yes, but that's not the end of it all. You continue, continue, continue to cleanse. Bringing about increasing holiness. Now that was Paul's directions to the church at Corinth. How does that correlate to you and me? I've already given a few suggestions along the way, but just to focus our attention on its application to us. The church of Jesus Christ today is in a spiral, a rapid spiral downwards. Not upwards, downwards. Even to the point in our day that we readily accept into the presence of the temple sin. That which is evil. Absolutely contrary to what the Spirit of God through Paul taught the church at Corinth. We need to heed the message that God gave to Paul to the church at Corinth. Purge out that which is evil. Get rid of it. God doesn't mix with evil. What can we conclude? Because God has designed that the church be his temple on earth, the place of his holy, glorious, manifest presence, we must purify the church. We must purge out that which is evil. Everything that is evil. Not some holding on to our favorite little things. No, all. Purge it all out. Get rid of it all. That we might become increasingly holy as a people of God. Now, what changes must we make? Well, at the very beginning, we must recognize the truth of God for what it is. The truth. Only the Spirit of God can open your eyes to see that. Otherwise, you view me as a babbling idiot. (laughs) Only the Spirit of God can open your eyes to see the truth. Only the Spirit of God can open your eyes to see the awfulness of your sin. And it is awful. It is putrid. It is filthy. It is vile. 
and God wants no part of it. Purge it out. Remove it. That we as a people might become increasingly more holy. That we might increasingly see the Spirit of God transform us from glory to glory to glory. That we might experience at our times of gathering together not just good times where we welcome one another and say hi and how are you and we have some time of talking with friends and family but times of when we really recognize the presence of God walking the aisles making his presence known to us for that's his design and intent one last thing and I will quit what are we supposed to do then as the church what were the final directions that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended up into heaven as you go as you go as you go so that what might extend throughout all the earth the glory of God that his presence might be throughout all the earth that they might be believers in every tongue, tribe and nation that God's glory and his presence might be there and there and there and everywhere because that's his plan and that's his purpose I pray that the Spirit of God will help you see that and that the Spirit of God will bring about in you the changes necessary for it to become a living reality in your own life and of that among the fellow believers where we worship together.